Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, or cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book of life. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I think we all have our or we each have had those times in our life where it's kind of hard for us to figure things out. Uh, I remember graduating high school, and I just really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so instead of doing something, I did a lot of things. I kind of waffled around. I went to junior college, stayed at home. I worked in a computer store doing return on bad items, and I worked in a music store selling instruments and, and things like that. Uh, I spent a lot of time meandering. I was at church sometimes. I hung out with friends sometimes. I I was able to stay very busy doing a lot of nothing. Just busy for busyness' sake. And I think looking back, I I begin to have a better understanding of why. Uh, It was my first year out of high school that I really felt that first call to gospel ministry But at that time, I wasn't ready to be called to gospel ministry. Um, And so I waffled. I went working, I went to college, eventually going off to four years of school, got my undergrad. And even as I went through my undergrad thinking, I'm going to be a band director, that's what I went for. I was going to be a band director, music education. I'm going to teach people to march and all the stuff that comes with that. And it wasn't until my last semester as I'm student teaching that I went, you know, I I just don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I have not the heart for this. And I began to really say, well, what do you have a heart? What what is my heart for? I realized I was being called to something different. And when I acknowledged that, I was able to start moving forward, understanding that in all of this was God's timing. Because to go where I wanted to go, I needed a four-year degree. So I got my four-year degree. God's timing is something that can be hard for us. I think of being married similarly. 
growing up, I was the kid in church who, like, as soon as church was over, I was back at the nursery because I liked hanging out with the little ones. I always wanted to be a father. I always wanted to have a family. And I got older and older and older, and I'm like, this isn't happening. Why would I have the heart for this? Why would I have the desire for this and this not happen for me? I was 33 when we got married, two months away from being 34. And then as I came out of it, I could realize, oh, this hadn't happened because God was growing my wife. She was having my two precious daughters. He was calling her to faith. And now I can look back and go, I was so angry and I was so impatient, but it was because God was preparing me for something better than I could have hoped for. Even through discouragements, we understand God's working. And it seems like this is always true for us. It is so hard for us to gain understanding of a situation while we're in the midst of it. That's why they have that great expression, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. I, I, I wish I got paid to be a sports announcer, a commentator, uh, because they get to do the easy. Well, they should have done this on that play. Well, of course, the play's over. You know what they should have done. They get paid to like look back and say, well, it would have worked better if you did this. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He, he gets the privilege of standing in the New Testament and looking back on the Old Testament with the great vision of 2020. He gets to look back and say, you see all these things that were going on? This is what they were really about. That the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was preparing us for the new covenant, the new testament. And it teaches us about our life under the new covenant and what it means to be as a Christian and what it looks like. So as we come and look at this text today, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the imperfect law. Second, we're going to see the perfecter of all things. And third and finally, the perfect obedience. The imperfect law the perfecter of all things, and the perfect obedience. So in essence, we're doing it this way. We're going to look at that which is imperfect, that which makes the imperfect perfect, and that which is perfect. Maybe that's more confusing than my three points. I don't know. Anyway, let's begin by looking at the imperfect law. Hebrews 10 opens by giving us another great history lesson in redemptive History. There is a relationship that is made here between the old covenant and the new covenant, that which was and that which is, between the good things that are still even to come at the end of redemptive history. But this picture uh, has to do with the roughness or uh, the unclearness of the, the, the things that the law pointed to. John Calvin says it this way. The things of the law were like the rough outlines, which are the foreshadowing of a living picture. Before they put on the true colors with paint, artists usually draw an outline in pencil of the representation which they intend. Uh, Calvin is pointing us here to what an artist might do. An artist might sketch with pencil on a canvas. 
This is what I want to draw. And then later they come behind with the paints and they give that picture life. And that's what he's saying. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is like this pencil drawing. You can see what it's supposed to be, but you don't see the full beauty of it yet. And there's several things as we look at this outline that we see here. Uh, The first is this, that there is a continuity between the old and the new. And there are many who would deny this. Uh, In fact, for a trend for a while was to print only New Testament Bibles with Proverbs and Psalms. And part of the reason behind this, and I'm, and I'm not talking about, some, you know, sometimes you get the ones at school, and I think a lot of that is done simply, the Gideons do that simply for the expedience of space. But there were some people printing them because they were like, this is all you need. You just need uh, the, the New Testament, and here's the Psalms and Proverbs because, you know, they're good for wisdom and things like that. But the rest of it doesn't really pertain to you. And this is simply not the case. Uh, The writer in Hebrews establishes that the old was a sketched outline of the new. In fact, as we go through here, as we look here, and even our translation is not the best translation it could be. As we look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, this Greek here word for true forms is the same word that is used in Colossians 1, where he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in fact, in many ways, image is a better translation. He is the good things instead of the image of these realities. There is an image that we see in the Old Testament that has come to its full fruition in Christ. It's not just simply the true form. It is the better image, the true image that is pictured in all its wonderful detail. But we also see this, and this is something we looked at this morning in Sunday school, that the Old Testament was always about Jesus. From the very beginning, the Old Testament was always about Jesus. If we miss that, then we're missing something big. So in Genesis, we saw this morning in Sunday school, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman was Jesus. The seed of the serpent was the devil. All of that, all of the rest of scripture outflows from this promise that Jesus, it's all about Jesus. We cannot interpret the Old Testament apart from the saving work of Christ. And if we do so, if we try to do so, we're missing a a vital understanding, a vital piece of what the Old Testament was. This is what Jesus did. You remember in that after Jesus was resurrected, at one point he's on the road with two disciples as they walk to Emmaus, right? And what does it say he does there? He opens up the word, which, by the way, they had their Gideons just Old Testament. as a joke. but They always fall flat. Nobody laughs. Giggle, giggle. Okay. They have their, just their Old Testament, right? He's opening up, and he's not, he doesn't even have the Old Testament. He's opening up from memory. He goes through the Old Testament, and he shows them how it's all about him. 
And beginning with Moses, it says in Luke 24, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When Jesus wanted to teach about himself, he went to the Old Testament. And he showed everything about how everything was about him. And with all this, we still acknowledge this, that the the picture of Christ in the Old Testament is a rough one. We have this, this privilege of having a better understanding of what Israel was doing in the Old Testament than Israel did. Because we get to look back with that wonderful vision of 2020, right? I know several people, I know Mark specifically, and I think maybe Larry others have had that the surgery recently, right? Cataract surgery. And that wonderful thing of like, I think Mark said, if I'm mis mistakenly quoting you, I can see the leaves on the individual leaves on a tree. I think that was you. Maybe not. But that understanding of like, I can't see clearly, but now I can see clearly. There's often a question asked today is why don't the Jewish, why doesn't the Jewish uh, religion continue in its sacrifices? If the Old Testament was what it was, the Old Covenant was what it was, why do they not continue in sacrifices? In fact, I became curious, so I Googled it, as any good responsible person was. If you have a question, you Google it. And I found uh, this article written by a Jewish rabbi. And much like we do, they point to the the temple fall of AD 70. You know, in AD 70, Rome came in, obliterated the temple. And he even said, sacrifices should continue. Uh, We can't do it, though, because currently a mosque sits on top of the temple, where the temple should be. It's called, what is it called? The Dome of the Mount, or Dome of the Rock. is in in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount now. And he said, you know, we can't do sacrifices now because, well, we don't have access to the temple. And that's the only place that we should be sacrificing. And then he went on to say, but, you know, really it, it doesn't matter because... As long as we do good things, and he talked about some other things like this, we, we can, we'll be okay. And, and I look at that and go, well, that's not what your, your, your Old Testament says. It says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He, he, he even went as far as to say, and I don't know if he speaks for all, all Jewish people, but he even went as far as to say the, the Old Testament doesn't really point to a Messiah at all. Taking these these time-honored text talking about the coming of Messiah. He says, that's not really what it was talking about at all. They missed, they're missing that the Old Testament is longing for the coming of something better. In fact, a word that was often on the lips of the prophet was, how long, O Lord? How long must we wait for this Messiah to come? This better way. Because as our text here tells us, all sacrifices ever did was remind them that they were sinful. If sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews tells us, were effective for forgiveness of sins, they would have sacrificed once. And they'd have been like, we're done. We have our sins forgiven. Right? It says that in verse 2. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
But then verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrificing of animals was only a reminder of their deficiency. That they needed something else. That they needed something better. And even more than that, it was a reminder for them to hope that there was something better coming. The Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient to achieve God's will. And that's why he goes into Psalm 40 here. Starting in verse 5, consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, and this is quoting from uh, Psalm 40, 6 through 8, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, not taken, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Again here, we have one of those interesting moments in the Old Testament where David is writing a psalm, and we assume that David is writing about himself, uh, and maybe even David is assuming that he's writing about himself, I don't know, but he's not. There's no way that David can say these words and they be about him. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, that was not true for David. In fact, what was David commanded to do? Make sacrifices and offerings. He had to do that. Yearly, daily, he had to make sacrifice and offerings. He didn't have a body prepared for him. This is pointing to to Jesus. It anticipates the mission of Christ. It's a shadow here, that rough sketch outline that we find come to its fullness in Jesus. God does not desire the sacrifices and offerings of bulls and goats, but the doing of his will. And again, for David, I believe in his context, this was not a condemnation of the sacrificial system. It was a condemnation of the heart that came to sacrifices, thinking they could do what they want and then just be okay. I grew up and I'll tell this, this joke because I did not make it. My, I grew up with some many, many Catholic friends. And they had a running joke amongst them. And it was really a joke, and they weren't being exactly serious, but they were kind of, I think, revealing something that was true of Catholicism in a way. They would say, yeah, I did this, or I did this. But they always say, ah, but it's okay, I'll go to confession. And they always did it very tongue-in-cheek. But it it reveals something. The heart is the sin doesn't matter because I can just cover it up. This is what they were doing in the Old Testament. There was many who would come and they would do something terrible and they'd be like, ah, but I'll just go sacrifice a bull. I'll just go sacrifice a goat and it'll be okay. It was hypocrisy. They were just going through the motions without any heart involvement. This is why Paul, or excuse me, David in Psalm 51 can write this. For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is the same warning I think that we're given today. God does not simply want us to come here and worship him for the sake of worship. 
If you come here today and you're sitting here today and you, you think, well, I've got, I'm covered now. I went to worship. I can check that off my list. That's not the right heart attitude. It's not about simply going through the motions. This is why Samuel can say something very similar to Saul. Uh, Saul, in one of their conquests, had gotten all these livestock, and he was commanded to kill them all. You know what he did? He kept them. It's money. It'd be like, hey, you go and you take over this nation, and there's all these bars of gold. Get rid of them. That's how he looked at it. No, that's a lot of money. I'm going to keep these. And when Samuel came to him and confronted him, he said, oh, well, I'll take a few of them and I'll sacrifice them to God. He didn't want to get rid of all of them. He wanted to appease God through sacrifice. That's what he was trying to do. I can, if I just sacrifice a few, that'll make me and God okay, and then I can keep what I wanted. Where was Saul's heart? It was not in obedience it wasn't in obedience. And so Samuel says to him, has the Lord, or excuse me, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God desires obedience to his will. So Micah similarly can say in Micah 6, 6 through 8, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be leased with a thousand of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body from the sins of my soul? And then he says this, he has told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What does he require but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the desire that God has for us, that we are eager to do his will. I remember I fell into this habit as a kid, and I'm, I know my kids have fallen into this habit. I know that you, your kids have and probably fallen into this habit if you have kids or did have kids, and you probably as a kid. Could, could have fallen into this heaven. I grew up in a Christian home, so whenever I got in trouble, I was quick to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I, and I treated it as the catch-all. If I just say I'm sorry, we can be done with this conversation. Here's the rub. I wasn't really sorry. I, I wasn't really sorry. I just wanted my parents to be quiet. And I acknowledge that. I did that as a kid, too, so that my kids don't feel embarrassed. Because they do it too. We all do it. It's the heart that's not really repentant. It's the heart that says, I really don't like this, so tell me what I have to say and then we'll move on. Right? We need to be daily reminded of the fact that there's nothing that we can do or this world can do to save us. There's nothing that, can, that is out there that can deliver us from our sin. We can't do it on our own, and certainly the world has nothing to offer. There is no buyout program for our sins. There is no buyout program. We cannot give enough money. We cannot say enough prayers. You can't go to enough worship service. You can't go to enough religious conferences. There's nothing that's going to make you right with God. 
You need something more. You need something outside of yourselves. You need something from God himself. We who are imperfect, the old sacrificial system that was imperfect, needed something to perfect it. Now, I know our first point was very, very long. The second two points are not quite as long, I promise. The second point is this, the perfecter of all things. Our passage contrasts the animal sacrifices with the self-sacrifice of Jesus. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, says this, Our author contrast is between the involuntary sacrifice of dumb animals and sacrifices unto which obedience enters. The sacrifice of a rational and spiritual being, which is not passive in death, but dying makes the will of God its own. This is the value of the sacrifice of the divine life. Because he is divine, because he is without spot or blemish, because he is not some dumb, ignorant animal, but willfully, spiritually seeking to obey God in all things. Obeying, as Samuel says, is better than sacrifice. But who has the ability to obey perfectly? Psalm 22, 14 through 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks out to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, Psalms, who is that about? It's about Jesus. Never was a man's life so scripted out as Jesus's was. You know how many like Old Testament prophecies Jesus had to fulfill for him to be Jesus? It's, it's staggering. Many will cry out that God's sovereignty, the idea of predestination makes us robots with no choice, but, but Christ was no robot. His obedience was anything but mechanical. Again, F.F. Bruce says this, wholehearted obedience is the sacrifice which God really desires, the sacrifice which he received in perfection from his servant son when he came into the world. The psalmist's words, I have come to do your will, O God, sums up the whole tenor of our Lord's life and ministry and expresses the essence of that true sacrifice that God desires. God desires obedience. And he desires this obedience so much for the, for the forgiveness of sins that he, he prepares for his son a body so that he could live in this world so that Jesus Christ in that flesh could honor God in all that he did in his life and in his death. It began in the manger with a destination being the cross and it will end in eternity. Jesus And John 4 says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish 
his works, God's desire, or Jesus's, excuse me, Jesus's desire was to do the will of his father. And he came and did this willingly so that he could come and take that which was imperfect and make it perfect. The whole of his life was set out before him and it was not easy. And even Jesus, when you talk about the life of being Jesus being laid out and yet you hear his, his language in the garden, Father, if there is any way, if there is any other way, let's go that route. Paraphrasing, right? Adding my own language. But not my will. Your will. Even in this, perfectly obedient, without spot or blemish, he comes doing the will of his Father in heaven, which leads us to our third and final point. I told you to be quicker. The perfect obedience. Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice and appears in the true sanctuary of God. And this is something we cannot say about ourselves. We cannot come before God upon our own merit. We cannot stand before our God in our own idea of righteousness. His blood washes away our sin. He abolishes the old and makes way for the new. It is the very thing that tore the veil in the temple. And we looked at this several weeks ago. That Jesus Christ took what was old and he ripped it in two. So that the new could come. So that we could enter freely into the presence of God. This is the emphasis which with the writer of our passage ends today. God is holy. He is perfectly holy. Heaven is holy. And his standard, his requirement is perfect holiness. And you, sinner, apart from Christ, are not holy. But Christ, Christ has made you holy. Through faith in Christ, you are made holy. Because his body was offered up once for all, we are no longer like the rest of the world in the sight of God. We are made new. We are made clean. This is how he ends here. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy, is what it's saying, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's verse 10. So what? Now what? How then should you live? Paul says in Romans, I appeal to you, you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to come now because we have been made clean and we are to offer ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to him. We are bearers of God. Or excuse me, we are redeemed image bearers of God who long to please their Lord and Savior. If you want to please God, how do you make... This is a terrible way to say it, but 
How do we make God happy? And it's not about making him happy. How do we do what God wants us to do? Do you want to please God? Do you want to give him pleasure? Then obey. Do his will in faith and obedience in the name of Jesus Christ who loved and gave himself up for your sins. It's the same thing. If you've had children or you have children, I don't know how many times we say this to our kids. And it doesn't stick. I can't complain. It didn't stick for me. It's the stubbornness of youth, right? Life in this house would be so much happier if you just obeyed. If you simply obeyed, things would go so much easier. In fact, things are are not easy when you choose to disobey. Simply obey. It's not simple, right? But obey. Brothers and sisters in Christ, to please God is to obey him, is an expression of love and gratitude for what he has done for us. He came and gave himself up for us. Christ appeared for us as the perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice, excuse me. His life was obedience on display. He did everything that God called him to do. And now we are called to be like him. To be imitators of Jesus. To be obedient to his will in all ways. As an act of spiritual worship. And one of the greatest things I think errors I see in the church is people who like to play at faith. Who think they can use God as a spiritual insurance plan. Think of an insurance plan. I have insurance on my house. It's that, that, so when like several years ago, the big hailstorm came through Pell City with the softball-sized hail and it dented up my roof. I didn't have to pay for that roof because I had my insurance. And sometimes, far too often, we treat God that way. Well, I'll come to church. I'll do a little around the church. I'll come and worship. Most of the time, I'll give to the offering sometimes. And while all these things are good things to do, They're not what God desires. A broken and contrite heart. Obedience to him. We labor and obey out of a sense of profound gratitude and love for the one who came and saved us. The law was imperfect. All the law could do was say, you're a sinner. Remember, you're a sinner. Hey, in case you forgot... You're a sinner. It reminded us of our sin and and the death that would come. If nothing else came in, in its place, we would only find death. But it also points us to Christ, the one who came and perfectly obeyed the law, who laid down his life so that we might have security and hope. And now we are to come before him because of what he has done. We obediently serve our king, not because it justifies us, but because we are justified in him. And so we come and we obey him out of love and the honor and the glory, to the glory of his name. This is what we're about to do here.
This, this is, is a reminder of the way in which Jesus Christ took the Old Testament sacrifice, as imperfect as it was, and perfected it in his flesh. But not only in his flesh, yes, he physically died, but he also perfected it in his spiritual judgment that was passed upon him on the cross. So when he cries out, it is finished. The whole cuff of God's wrath has been poured upon me for the remission of sins. His body broken. His blood poured out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not believe, and I'll say it now and I won't have to repeat myself later, we do not believe that this is somehow a mystic transformation of the elements. We don't believe that God's, this bread literally becomes the body of Jesus, and we don't believe that this wine and juice literally becomes the blood of Jesus. But we also, like many of our brethren around brothers and sisters in Christ don't believe that this is simply a memorial either. You'll go around this town and you'll go to places that, that observe communion, but it's simply a memory and it's more, it's so much more than that. Christ is presence, present with us as we come to this table. His grace through the taking is communicated to us. It reminds us that we are not our own, that Christ has come and he has purchased us and bought us with his very body and blood. Therefore, we move forward in faith, in zeal, not because we feel like we have to, not out of compulsion, but we understand who Christ is, who we are before God and what he has done for us. And we move forward in faith and obedience. With that in mind, let us come and pray as we prepare our hearts for this table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now and we ask and we pray, even as we see in this table the perfection of the Old Testament sacrificial system, Lord, would you strengthen us now that we may see the glories and wonders of who Jesus is, that we would not come in compulsion out of a sense to earn our way, but that we would come in humble reliance fully on Jesus Christ and him alone. We ask and pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, please stand now as we sing our first two verses of Behold the Lamb as we prepare our hearts for this table. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for 